We know Georgia politics from Peachtree Street to Pennsylvania Avenue. Politically Georgia podcast delivers exclusive news and analysis five days a week by a team of veteran political insiders watching your public officials. Hosted by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Greg Bluestein, Bill Nygut, Tia Mitchell, and Patricia Murphy. Listen weekdays at 10 a.m. on WABE 90.1. Stream everywhere or at AJC.com forward slash podcasts. News and analysis five days a week from Politically Georgia podcast. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you again. We thank you for joining us. This past week, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam signed legislation that would allow individuals who committed crimes when they were minors to be eligible for parole. This was based on a case brought by the attorneys of Lee Boyd Malvo, one of the D.C. area snipers who terrorized the region in 2002. Douglas Ganser is the former attorney general of the state of Maryland and was the state's attorney in Montgomery County, Maryland, who prosecuted the D.C. sniper cases. He joins us this time on the Hill. Good morning, Good to see you. Yeah. Um, one of the things that people immediately reacted to when they had heard the news that the governor had signed this bill was concern that Lee Boy Malva might get paroled. Uh, you say that that's not a concern people should have. Why? Well, I think that Bad cases make bad law. And so if you look at this case, you're looking at it and say, oh, well, Malvo, why are we being sympathetic to him? And the reality is, the, I, I haven't talked to the governor, but I do support the bill and I support what the governor did here in the Virginia legislature because it's, it's everybody other than Malvo that's important. In other words, if you're a 15, 16, 17-year-old and you rob a 7-Eleven and it goes bad and you get life without the possibility of parole, do we really want that young person to be still in jail when they're 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, paying $30,000 a year plus more as they get even older for health care. Um, and most of those people should get out at some point. Malvo would be sort of the opposite. He would be the, the bad law, uh, bad bad case making bad law. He will, he will be parole eligible under this in about two and a half to four years, depending on credits. But he is extremely unlikely to be paroled. I mean, he and John Muhammad were responsible for murdering over 20 people starting in the state of Washington, coming down through Arizona, Texas, Alabama, Georgia, and up into our area where they killed 10 people and injured many more. And they also did what, you know, it was termed test shootings before they began their actual murder spree throughout the DMV. Well, yeah. I mean, they when they got here, they started killing people by then. But they were they were doing different types of crimes. Different, and, and then we all remember sort of those twenty days in October of two thousand two. It it very much changed during the course of it because they they really created terror here, and that's what their motive was. It was you recall it was a year after nine eleven. John Muhammad hated America, um, and he wanted to uh, create this sort of fear and panic, which he was successful in doing. And you have to remember also, just as looking back at that, you know, many of these cases, serial murderers take months, years to capture. It was really, while we lived it and seemed forever, it was only three weeks, and we were able to bring them in and then, and then prosecute them. Most people thought that they would get death by you know, suicide, but they were found asleep. And so we were able to have this prosecution, and then Malvo um, ends up you know, in jail now and in, in, in a very different place than he was at the time he was apprehended. You prosecuted uh, the D.C. snipers in Montgomery County, Maryland, after um, they had been uh, prosecuted in, in Virginia. Why did you want to press on with those cases, um, even though that they had already you know, secured 
convictions in, in Virginia? Yeah, it never occurred to me not to prosecute them. I mean, they, they murdered six people in Montgomery County, Maryland. And, you know, we talked to some of the victims. Obviously, I talked to all the victims. And, you know, it, it, it's a tough thing to say, hey, by the way, these guys were convicted of, of, of a murder in Virginia. And therefore, we're not going to care about your loved one and you're not going to get your day in court and you're not going to hear about what happened in your case and so there are a lot of reasons why we did it um six people were murdered in montgomery county so um and, and montgomery county was the epicenter of the, the crimes epicenter of the investigation and therefore should have been the epicenter of, of the prosecution which it all ultimately was um and so you know the people said well it's going to cost a lot of money it didn't cost any money everyone was on fixed salary we had had, had all the evidence in montgomery county because that's where we ran the joint sniper uh, task force which i was heading at the time um and then and then of course the, the one of the other reasons was you just never know what's going to happen in virginia and virginia had a very different way of looking at these cases than we did um there was a triggerman statute and there was always an issue about who was the triggerman in the in the one virginia case that they prosecuted visa uh, in terms of muhammad and the one in terms of malvo and so we wanted this backstop and now we see that actually is a pretty good thing to have. Well, and a lot of people would say, thank God you did, because, yeah. you know, there are six life sentences awaiting Lee Boyd Malvo if by some miracle he was ever paroled in, in Virginia. Right. You don't know what parole boards are going to do. And so he, he would not seemingly be a good candidate for parole. He will be parole eligible. That certainly does not mean he will get parole. And I, I would think he'd presumptively not get parole, certainly at this time. Um, and then... If he were to get parole, though, yes, he's got the six life sentences without uh, possibility of parole here in Maryland. Now, we could get the same law in Maryland that they have in Virginia, so he may become parole eligible sometime in Maryland down the road. They, and, of course, people say, well, then he's likely to just stay in jail for the rest of his life. And that is the likely scenario. However, you know, some governor down the road could always commute the sentence, could always pardon them. Probably less likely to pardon than commute, but that could happen. What was it like prosecuting him? You, you, you spoke with him over the course of that. Yeah, it was time. it was very different. So when when he got brought when he was brought in and, and actually during the Virginia cases, he was very much under the the guise of Muhammad. I'm not one of these people that sort of buys into oh, you know the cat made me do it unless there's true mental health issues. But in this case, Malvo really thought of Muhammad as a father figure and didn't really understand seemingly the magnitude of the crimes he was actually committing at the time. He was completely mentally fit and obviously to stand trial and, and knew what they were doing, but didn't understand the gravity of what they were doing. Explain to me, to me because that seems at cross purposes. How, how can you be as intelligent as those who have spoken to Malvo say that he is, but yet at the same time not have a grasp of the gravity of these murders. Well, one thing is he was younger, and that's what that's why they changed the law. That's why the Supreme Court ultimately said, in fact, after the prosecution of Malvo in Virginia, the reason being given that, that they were going to prosecute the case in Virginia was that John Ashcroft, who was the Attorney General of the United States, wanted to get the death penalty for Malvo. They brought the case, therefore, to Virginia. They tried him there with the death penalty. He, the, the prosecutors did not get the death penalty. And subsequent to that, the Supreme Court said, you know what, we're not going to allow the death penalty for juveniles anyway. So um, he, he then came, came over to Maryland. The, 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 the issue is, are you mentally incompetent? Can you stand trial? Do you understand what's going on around you? And Malvo did understand what was going on around him very clearly, but he just didn't really synthesize and, and digest the consequences of what he was doing. It was almost like a, like a video game, if you yeah. will, for, for him because he was very young at the time. By the, from the time he was in Virginia to the time he then gets to Maryland a couple years later, he then writes me a letter 
um, a handwritten letter wanting to meet and talk about what happened. Um, so we did. We met is him. That in, a, is that unusual that a, that a defendant would reach out to you directly and, and want to? It's talk? unusual because, yeah. it, but everything about this case was obviously unusual. Yeah. That's why we're still talking about it eight, eighteen years later. Just the, what happened and how it happened and all that was very unusual. And the fact there were two people involved, and so um, so it wasn't unusual. But and he was, you know, obviously very dangerous. Um, and so he wrote me a letter, wanted to sort of talk about the case, and and you know we did know about all these other murders, but we weren't sure. What was that meeting like? So it was kind of incredible. We, he, we met him in my office. And when I say my office, I mean my office. He came into my office at the state's attorney's office in Rockville, very heavily guarded. And he came in and I said, um, you know, what do you say to a mass murderer? And I said, um, how are you spending your time in jail? And he said, I read a lot. And I said, what are you reading now? And he said, The Fountainhead by Ann Rand. And we had a conversation about the difference between Howard Roark and Peter Keating, the two main characters. And the Fountainhead, and this was became extremely clear to me that I was dealing with a very intelligent person. Who, who it's not the kind of book, you know, Anne Rand, that <laughs> that, that, that a normal, you know, young person, teenager would read. I mean, it was that from John Allen Muhammad exposing him to those kinds of things, or was that something that once freed from the thumb of Muhammad that he was then free? to pursue interests like reading and, and other kind of information. Stuff. Yeah, I think if you're locked in a cage, you kind of do what you can do. And I think he had access to that book, however he got it and read it. And what, what struck me was that this was sort of a, a wasted life um, because he was not a typical thug who, you know, was it was um, out there, you know, selling drugs or, you know, just killing people and shooting people. I mean, he was, he was a, a mass murderer and he was able to look through the, the scope of a gun at... at from from a distance, but it looks close range, and actually shoot the tr- shoot and kill people. But he had certainly had a lot of intelligence around him. Um, but what that, then what struck me was that he ha- was on after as we talked further, he was no longer sort of under the guise of Muhammad. Realized what Muhammad had done to him, the position that he was now in. Um, he had full certainly responsibility for it and understood what he was doing when he did it. But now he was in a very different place. Did that affect you, how you approached the prosecution at all? It, it, not at all. We had to prove our case, and we did prove our case. And as the judge that tried the case said to, to us, that he felt it was the perfect trial. The way it was conducted, it was very, it was very short in scope, and really um, it went very well. What it did affect us about was the uh, a potential plea, and not that we were going to plea it down. We weren't. But he was willing and able to go into court and talk about all of the murders that they'd committed from the inception in the state of Washington throughout the United States. I believe it was around 22 total and would go through each one, how and why it happened. I recall specifically there was a man that was playing golf and he was on the fairway in Arizona and there was a through and through uh, a bullet that went through and he took a swing. The next thing he was just lying there. And they ch- and and Ma- Malvo knew things that only the shooter would have known, and could have known. And so, what we offered the Virginia prosecutors, the local prosecutors, was: look, all the, we want him to come into court. All the victims' families from around the country could come into court and and hear what happened and how. And all he wants, he doesn't want any. He gets he's not going to get any uh, concessions. The only thing he wanted was to move out of the Red Onion pre- prison facility there that he was in in Southern Virginia. And we, well, so the way we were going to do it was 
We were going to have him plea last to the Pascal murder that would happen in D.C. Because, as you know, D.C. homicide uh, defendants end up going to federal jail. And so that he would have gone to the federal system, which, although these were not federal crimes, they certainly looked and felt like they were federal crimes because they were murders that happened all throughout Across the United States. States. Yeah. yeah, and so... The, the, we, so we we're going to do all the. We, he was going to plead to all the all these cases. And so they, instead of the, the the ten, he'd have twenty something, and then the last plea was going to be in, in D.C. And then he would be sentenced. There. He would be uh, spend the time in jails in, in in the federal system, and that's all we wanted. And of course, the Virginia prosecutors uh, didn't want to do it, and I, it's still unclear to me how that happened. You're listening to the On the Hill podcast from Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. The murder of Robert Wan, one of the most puzzling and gripping cases in the D.C. area. I'm Paul Wagner. Join me as I take a closer look at the mystery on Swan Street in a Fox 5 podcast available on Google Play, iTunes, and Spotify. This is the On the Hill podcast coming to you from Washington, D.C. and Fox 5. Tom Fitzgerald, we're joined this time by Douglas Ganser. He is the former attorney general of the state of Maryland and was the former state's attorney in Montgomery County. Um, Let's talk a little bit of politics with you. Um, The governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, right now is um, coming up about halfway through his second term. He's term limited, so Larry Hogan is going to leave office in about two years. Uh, You ran in a a Democratic primary for the the Democratic nomination. Ultimately, uh, you were not successful, um, but you are somebody who is often in the conversation when people talk about what we're going to be looking at as far as a potential field of candidates for the governorship of Maryland. So let, let me put it to you. Uh, have you uh, considered possibly running again for, for governor of Maryland? Well, people have talked to me about it, obviously, because we now we're the most Democratic state in terms of registered Democrats to Republicans. And now we've had two of our last three governors have been Republican. And there was a poll taken um at, at the week prior to the primary six years ago, which showed that had I run against Governor Hogan, at the, then Larry Hogan at the time, uh, that I would have won by 22 points. And that, that same poll had him beating the, our ultimate nominee by three points, and he won by more than that at the end. Um, but I, you know, I had 16 years in, in, in office, I had uh, 22 years in government, um, and loved every minute of it. And so uh, I felt like I was able to effectuate a lot of positive change. So I'll take a look at it down the road. I mean, I think right now, um, people are subsumed as they should be by the presidential race. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a lot of air in the room for, for other races. Um, but I do think it's important that we, uh, that we do in Maryland what we're looking at um, in the United States, which is to get a candidate that can actually win. And, and, and that, I think that's going to be important because we need to get Democratic values back in Annapolis. And, and um, Governor Hogan's an immensely and enormously popular. But there's going to be a lot of races in 2022. Uh, Senator Van Hollen's up. There's been discussion about Governor Hogan running against for that seat. Um, there'll be, there's, you know, the, the, all the other statewide races will be up as well. So it'll be interesting. We already know uh, Congressman David Trump, a Democrat, has expressed interest in running. Uh, we know the uh, current Democratic Comptroller, uh, Peter Franchot, has already said that he will uh, will announce and will run at some point. Um, talk to me about the, the, the makeup of Virginia uh, or, or uh, Maryland Democrats right now. Because, you know, when I look at Virginia over the past 18 years that I've covered politics there i've seen virginia get more purple and then now more blue more democratic when you point out correctly that two of the last three maryland governors in maryland have been republicans 
that kind of makes you sit up in your seat a little bit. You know, I don't think the change mm. in Maryland has been as much as it has in, in Virginia. But what, what's going on with Maryland voters that they are, even though as democratic as Maryland is, willing to, you know, return governors to the governor's house who, who are not Democrats? Yeah, I think actually it's an interesting study in contrast because Virginia has gone from red to purple to blue. Mm. Um, Maryland was deep blue. Um, for forever, and you know, the before Governor Ehrlich was elected, it had been a very, very long time uh, that we had a, a, a Republican governor, and and now sixty to seventy percent of the elected officials around the state of Maryland are Republican, and there, there's certainly um, the the Montgomery, Prince George's, and Baltimore City are, are still, and Charles County are still very much Democratic. Um, I think the, I, I really do believe what what's going on in Maryland is what's going on around the country, which is there's sort of two two parties within the Democratic Party. There's the sort of what is, what is labeled as the far left progressives and then the more the other party part of it being the more moderate uh, Democrat. And I think there's a lot of people that sort of transcend both. You know, I've always been sort of in that mold. Uh, you know, I was five years ahead on marriage equality, a huge environmentalist and started the first civil rights division and ran President Obama's campaign in Maryland. But but I was also a prosecutor for 22 years. So and I think jobs are actually a good thing. So uh, I, I sort of straddle both of those. Not not many people do. And I think we're, ultimately we're going to need some candidates to do both of those things. When we look at the national party, you know, we do kind of see this kind of struggle for the soul of of, of the Democratic Party between, you know, the kind of policies that are Bernie Sanders espouses and, you know, Joe Biden's, you know, form of, uh, of, of Democratic politics. Do you see parallels of that in, in Maryland? I do. And I think what, you, what you're seeing it also play out, which is the more Bernie Sanders uh, Democrats are vote in the primaries. They're much more vocal. They're much more energized. They go out and vote in the primaries. There's, there's a vast majority of Democrats, however, would come under the, the Biden umbrella. So that, so there's a perception out there, right or wrong, that Joe Biden um, would be more, far more likely to beat Donald Trump because more Democrats actually are moderate. And of course, the moderates are moderate and you get moderate Republicans. And there's much, there's sort of just a pocket of, of the far left folks that are always going to be there. For and them. the results out of the South Carolina primary would seem to, to bolster that that opinion as well, too. Right. And and but there are also and then that's where race also plays into it, which it does in Maryland. You know, our, our state's 30 percent African-American, 40 to 42 percent of the Democratic the primary voters are African-American. So we need to make sure we have someone with a deep record on, on African-American issues and minority issues going forward, as Joe Biden does. And so that's why, you know, people are like, well, why why is why is the African-American vote going more to him than, say, Bernie Sanders, when Bernie Sanders is talking properly about econ- economic disparity and uh, unequal access to opportunity? But Joe Biden has the has the record, and, and he's shown that what he what he has done, and that he really cares, and that's why he got some of these major endorsements as well. And from what you can discern, is that rooted in Joe Biden's own record, thirty seven years in the United States Senate, or and this is a you know a point I don't think gets talked about enough. He served as vice president for eight years to the first African American president in this country's history well and they had it means something it means something to some yeah. people I mean, you know i was very close to joe biden's son Bo biden he was elected the same day i was in, in delaware and we became extremely we were close colleagues for yeah and we were friends and colleagues and we talked all the time and and I, I just recall president obama at Bo's funeral and i was at the funeral um in wilmington and and uh the, the closeness that president obama and joe biden had 
not that not it, it certainly transcended the notion of a transactional relationship it, and they really had a deep and abiding friendship and you only have that if if you're really sort of simpatico on your issues so I think that there there is that I mean I, I however I don't think it's a direct translation that because Bo, uh, because Joe Biden was the vice president for Barack Obama, therefore he's the next Barack Obama. But I do think that Joe Biden has a long history and a, a deep record with the African American community, as do other candidates in the race. It's clout, you know, it's clout that he brings to that conversation. That's right. That right. others. And well, he can say, look, he it's not he he's walked the walk, not just talking the talk on that. As again, as have other candidates in the race. Our guest has been the former Attorney General of the State of Maryland, Douglas Gansler, and he's been kind enough to join us on the Hill this time. Thank you very much. Thank you. We thank you as well for joining us from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. You've been on the Hill. En The Home Depot, puedes encontrar soluciones de almacenamiento que se adapten a tus necesidades, como estantes industriales Husky, con una capacidad de carga de hasta 2,500 libras por estante. Así que, sí, puedes soportar el peso de tus pesas, herramientas, cajas con todos tus recuerdos y más. Porque el sistema de almacenamiento adecuado debe ajustarse a lo que tú necesitas. Ahorra más con hasta 25% menos en almacenaje seleccionado por Internet. The Home Depot. Haces más. Logras más.